0: All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 22. The name of our message this morning is, Who is the real king of Egypt? And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 3, please remember that all scripture is breathed out by God. So this very word that we're about to hear is spoken from the same God who created the world by a word. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I've observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord. The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we ask you by the power of your Holy Spirit living within us that you would enable us this morning to feast from the abundance of your house and to drink from the rivers of your delight. For it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, you may be seated. John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, wrote this in the opening sentence to his famous Institutes of the Christian Religion. He said, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Those two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourself, is what Moses has been being taught on Mount Horeb. In verse 11, he asks, who am I? Knowledge of self. And then in verse 13, he asks God, what is his name? Knowledge of God. What have we seen thus far in God revealing himself to Moses? Well, to get everybody caught up, it was the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ who met Moses in the burning bush. This angel is clearly representative of the Christ to come. He is the tender bush representing the nature of man, and he is the burning fire representing the nature of God. He is, as we heard last week, Yahweh the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable, great I am. It is he who entered into a covenant with Abraham and with all of his offspring and with all of you who belong to Christ Jesus. He didn't establish this covenant with Abraham or with Israel or with you or with me because he found loveliness in us that attracted him. If he was attractable, then he is not the great I am. No, his covenant stands on free grace alone. So thus far to verse 15 in our passage. But Yahweh is not done revealing himself. In verses 16 through 22, a new emphasis comes to focus. I hope you heard it. Seven times in our passage, God says, I, I, I will do, I will accomplish, I will appoint, I will set forth. Look, look with me halfway through verse 16. I have observed. Verse 17, I promise, I will bring. Verse 19, I know. Verse 20, I will stretch out. Verse 20, I will give. You see, what we're seeing here is a preview of the coming attraction of God releasing Israel from Egypt. And he wants Moses to know before this even begins that it is I who will accomplish this. As Nebuchadnezzar later confessed that God does according to his will amongst the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's the God who is speaking right now. God wants Moses to know who the real king of Egypt is. It's not Pharaoh. It's Yahweh. And dear congregation, this is, your God today. You do not serve a God who plays second fiddle to any king in this world. You serve a God who conquered Egypt. Let's look at our outline together. Four parts. First, we're going to see king over all redemption in verses 16 and 17. Second, king over all rule in verse 18. Third, king over all resolve in verses 19 through 21. And then king over all restitution in verses 21 through 22. So let's look first of all at king over all redemption. Please look with me at verse 16. Yahweh from the burning bush now tells Moses specifically what he must do upon returning to Egypt. And more importantly, what God is going to do. So verse 16, he tells him, go, And gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Now, first of all, just consider the Lord's authority here. He says, Go, gather, speak. Go and gather the leadership, the elders of Israel. And say these things to them. He tells Moses precisely what his mission statement is. I hope you don't have one of these stickers on your car. Because I don't really want to hear any complaints this week. But if you have one of those stickers on your car that says, God is my co-pilot. Rip it off. God is not your co-pilot. He is the master he is the king. He plays second fiddle to no one. God is Moses' his master here, and Moses was his subject. And this is precisely how the New Testament authors speak about their relationship to God as well. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It opens with these words. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. A slave. The greatest men that this world has ever seen, Moses and Paul, were slaves of God. Can you say that you are a slave of God? That he is your master? Now, of course, That's not the only way that we are to relate to God, but it is the foundation. Um, Before we confess anything else, we confess that he is king, that he is master. And this is what makes his care for us so much more infinitely sweet. Why would this great king of the universe condescend to love people like us? That's why the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of? Of you created the heavens and the earth? What am I? I am a worm of the dust. Puritan Stephen Charnock says, the condescension of royalty magnifies the gift. And what is this gift that the king promises? Specifically, what does he promise Israel? Look at verse 17. The Lord continues. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, we've already seen this language and we're going to see it again. It's important to draw attention to, to new things that are behind this promise. And, and what I want to show you now that this is a twofold promise. The first promise is for Israel, and we have seen this. God told Abraham 430 years earlier that he was going to bring Israel out of slavery to Egypt and bring them into the promised land. That's in Genesis 15:14. And this promised land was going to be so prosperous that he describes it as. Flowing with rivers of milk and honey. But there's a second promise that's implicit here. And it's especially wonderful during Advent. The second promise implicitly is for the nations of the world. Consider what is so special about this land. The land of the Canaanites. Why this land? Why that particular location? Listen to what Abraham Kuyper says here. This is a little bit of an extended quote, but it's so vital to hear. If it had been the Lord's design and intent... To seek the isolation of Israel before all else and to keep Israel out of contact with the nations, would it even have been thinkable that the Lord, to whom the whole world belongs, would have chosen the region of Palestine for Israel? The region of Palestine is the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, etc. If you want to isolate a tribe, a nation, a people, then you must let it dwell on some remote island in an elevated mountainous region or in a remote corner of the earth. But here we find the Lord doing the exact opposite. And we may say without exaggeration that God gave Israel precisely that region that was the least isolated and the most in contact with the nations of the earth. Indeed, when you ask an authority on history the question, which location on this earth was at that time the point where the most nations intersected, then not a single location could be pointed to that definitely fulfilled these requirements more completely than Palestine. It lay precisely in the center of the world at that time, end quote. Israel was the intersection of three major continents, Asia, Europe, and Africa. That was the world in the ancient days. And Israel was at the crosshairs of that intersection. Why is that important to note? Because God saved Israel out of Egypt, not only for Israel's sake, but so that she could be a blessing to every nation on earth. Remember, that was the promise with Abraham, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And so that brings us to our first principle this morning. The king is always about working redemption for the world. The king is always about working redemption for the world. In other words, the book of Exodus is not primarily about saving Israel, as wonderful as that is. Rather, as Kuiper says, the nation of Jacob was created and enriched by God in order to prepare the medicine of eternal life for the nations of the world. So by giving Israel the promised land, God was placing Israel at the very center of the earth, where the Messiah would be born. God gave Israel the center of the ancient world in order to minister salvation to the nations. My beloved, we live 7,000 miles away from Jerusalem. There's no nation on the earth where the gospel has not gone. That traces back to this. How do we apply this then? We praise the almighty, all generous, all wise God that he appointed these things for our good. Oh, think, think, consider. What would have happened if the king put Israel on some isolated mountain or some remote island that had no contact with the rest of the nations? Think what the state of your soul would have been if Messiah would have been born, if the whole word of God would have been written and you had known nothing of it, you'd still be dead in your sins and your trespasses. But praise God. The king has always had the world in mind with redemption. I mean, that's one of the things that we celebrate during Advent in Isaiah 49.6. God says this to his son. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to only raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Beloved, praise God this Christmas season. That God did not isolate Israel but gave them a land that guaranteed the blessing would go far and wide to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So that's our first point. He is the king over redemption. When he gave Israel this land, he was preparing medicine for eternal life for the nations. Let's look at our second heading, king over all rule. Please look with me at verse 18. So how are the elders of Israel going to respond to this when Moses comes to them? Verse 18, and they will listen to your voice. Let's stop right there. Remember, this was Moses' concern back in verse 13. He says, essentially, well, why would they listen to me? What is your name? What should I say to them? Remember, that 40 years earlier, all of Israel, according to Acts 7.35, had rejected Moses' leadership, but now... The king here is guaranteeing that these elders would listen to him, meaning that despite their many sins and faults along the way, they were going to receive Moses as their leader. What next? Well, continuing halfway through verse 18, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh... The God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So notice three things here. First of all, notice Moses' authority. When he addresses Pharaoh, he's not addressing Pharaoh in his own name. He's not addressing Pharaoh in the name of shared human values. No, he's approaching Pharaoh in the name of the Lord God, Yahweh. Secondly, notice Moses' approach. His initial approach to Pharaoh was to be a humble servant. In fact, he's to ask permission from Pharaoh in order for Israel to go. I think this is absolutely fascinating. Why does the king of the universe have Moses ask for permission from this earthly king? Perhaps it reflects um, the two comings of Christ. Um, Yahweh first appears gentle to Pharaoh, uh, just as Christ appears gentle in his first coming. And only when Pharaoh rejected what Yahweh told him to do, did he lay his arm bare and ruin Egypt, just like Jesus will do in his second coming, when he comes with vengeance. Regardless of why the particular um, reason for this is, just note that even though this is in a form of a request, please allow them to go. Uh, This is not something that Pharaoh was allowed to deny. He could not say no to it. Thirdly, uh, notice Moses' appeal. The essence of what Moses was asking was for Israel to be able to worship God the way that God demanded. Halfway through the verse, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now, some commentators think that this is deceptive. Uh, to Pharaoh because God had directed him to only ask for a three-day retreat. But but we already know that God had promised them that he would deliver them completely out of Egypt and that Egypt would be punished. So is is God being deceptive here? Well, I think that the solution is actually easy if we look elsewhere. Uh, Before the Babylonian captivity took place, God absolutely told Judah that Jerusalem would be destroyed. That's in 2 Chronicles 34, 24 through 25. But when that time came, he had promised uh, King Zedekiah that if he surrendered, that his life would be spared and Jerusalem would not be burned down, Jeremiah thirty eight seventeen. Do you see the kind of conflicting promises here? But he wasn't offering a deceptive promise to King Zedekiah. If King Zedekiah would have repented, Jerusalem would have been spared. But God knew full well that Zedekiah would not repent. And so it is here. God had already promised to judge Egypt, Genesis fifteen fourteen. but here he offers this king terms of peace. If he will let his people go and worship him. But Yahweh knew full well that Pharaoh would never let his people go. As one author put it, Pharaoh was unwilling to give God even three days of glory. And so we arrive here at our second principle. Every human authority must obey the king of kings. Every human authority must obey the king of kings. One of the most unhelpful theologies of our day right now is called two-kingdom theology or radical two-kingdom theology, and it teaches that the civil sphere is not to be ruled by special revelation. Uh, Thus says the Lord. It teaches rather that The civil sphere is simply to be ruled by natural law. So natural law are those self-evident moral axioms that all human beings have access to through general revelation. Now I'm a huge fan of general revelation. I think we should use it regularly. But here's the problem. Yahweh does not restrict himself in the Bible to general revelation. He says to Pharaoh here, thus says the Lord. The whole book of Exodus is God requiring Pharaoh to obey him. And this pattern is repeated all over Scripture. The Lord required King Abimelech to obey him, Genesis 23. He demanded King Nebuchadnezzar's obedience, Daniel 4 31 and 32. He required King Belshazzar's obedience, Daniel 5.22. The King of Nineveh's obedience, Jonah 3.6. King Herod's obedience, Acts 12.23. Every human authority, regardless of what nation they belong to, owe obedience to the Lord. And this has been the view of the Reformed tradition until five minutes ago in church history. Listen, John Calvin, 1509, 1564, wrote this in his letter to the king of France. The characteristic of a true sovereign is to acknowledge that he is a minister of God. He who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts not the part of a king, but a robber. Puritan Stephen Charnock, 1628, 1680 asked, did God ever appoint any earthly authority against his glory and give them leave to outlaw his laws to introduce their own? No, he calls upon the kings of the earth to observe his orders and to pay him homage as their governor. Dutch theologian Petrus van Maastricht, 1630 to 1706, said this, quote, Magistrates should have God's law before their eyes, prescribe it for their subordinates, protect it against enemies as nursing fathers of the church and as guardians of both tables of the law, End quote. Former president of Princeton in the good old days when it was actually Christian, A.A. Hodge, 1823 to 1886, asked this rhetorically. Who is responsible for the new doctrine that the state is not a creature of God and owes him no allegiance? End quote. When Moses went to Pharaoh in the name of Yahweh, Pharaoh was expected to obey Not because it was Moses, but because it was the king of all the world. How do we apply this then? We apply it as a warning for those who have not yet submitted to this king. Who is your king? We need to warn ourselves by what happened to Pharaoh. He lost everything. He lost the wealth of Egypt. He lost his firstborn son. He lost his own life because he did not obey the true king. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Herod was eaten by worms. The king of kings will not be mocked. In this life... This king comes to you gently. He is meek and lowly of heart. He came to you in a manger in Bethlehem. He came to you as the shepherd king, inviting you, calling you, promising you eternal life if you call upon his name. But if you spurn him in this life, the king will meet you at the judgment seat, and he will inflict vengeance upon you. You You'll suffer the fire of eternal destruction. So if you have not yet submitted to the king this morning, listen to what the scripture says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord who will abundantly pardon So that's our second point, that there is no one, not king or commoner, that is not under the dominion of the king of heaven. Let's look thirdly at king over all, resolve. And by resolve here, I just simply mean that the king has authority over our very hearts, our choices, our determination. Um, We already saw that God directed the hearts of the elders of Israel to accept Moses' leadership in verse 18, but this king has authority over every heart in this book. Look how Pharaoh is going to respond to Moses' request to let Israel go. Verse 19, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled to. By a mighty hand. How are we supposed to understand this knowing of God? This knowing of future events? Is this simply his understanding. Like a a bare naked foreknowledge. Of what's going to happen in the future? I I might say that I know. 12 hours from now. That it will be dark. I would be correct if I said that. But it would be wrong to suppose that. Yahweh is simply aware of how future events are going to unfold. In other words, when he says, I know that, Mo- that Pharaoh will not let him go, he's not simply predicting what Pharaoh was going to do. Look ahead with me at chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. That's why he knows that Pharaoh will not let them go, because he has authority over Pharaoh's heart. And we will get to what this means later on, but don't miss the point. He is king on the throne of human hearts. When God is finished with the 10 plagues, then he's going to turn Pharaoh's heart the opposite way and let the people go. Look at verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it, and after that, he will let you go. But there's more. He's also the king over all the hearts of the Egyptians. Look at verse 21. And I will give this people favor, in the sight of the Egyptians. Let's stop right there. That word favor just means friendly disposition or goodwill towards others. It's the same word used in Genesis 39 4. The Lord was with Joseph and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of prison. Joseph received special treatment in prison because God moved on the prison keeper's heart. Why did the Egyptians give their treasures over to Israel when they left? Because God, the king of heaven, moved their hearts to do so. And that brings us then to our third principle this morning. King Yahweh exercises his authority over every human heart. Consider three quick proofs of this. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In Psalm 105.25, the psalmist tells us the reason why the Egyptians had turned against Israel to begin with. God turned their hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. In Ezra 7.27-28, Ezra praised the Lord for moving on the Persian king uh, Artaxerxes' heart to give money to rebuild the house of God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. The king of the burning bush has authority over every human heart. How do we apply this? Well, this doctrine has a double comfort. We comfort ourselves. First of all, we comfort ourselves knowing that Yahweh has power over our own hearts. Isn't that amazing? Beloved, you don't even have that power. You don't have power over your own heart. And you know this to be true. I I don't have to bend your arm. I don't have to convince you. Children, boys and girls, one of the hardest things to learn is to learn how little control you have over your heart. Have you experienced this yet? The war of your heart. I remember this war starting in my heart when I was just a little boy. My heart wants to think evil thoughts. My heart lied to me about who I was. My heart lied to me about who God was. My heart told me that sinning would make me happy. It's, it's actually terrifying to think that you have this enemy within yourself. But children, you have a king in heaven who has control and authority over your heart. And that is the greatest comfort. When your heart is confused or angry or frustrated or hardened or scared and you are powerless to control it, it's it's like raging waters. You can cry out to him because there's a king who can still it You can cry out to him. You can say, Lord, as you calm the raging sea, calm my heart. Lord, as you cause light to shine in the darkness, give light to my dark heart. Lord, as you open Lydia's heart to see the truth, open my heart so that I can see and delight in the truth. So that's our first comfort, that though we don't have power over our hearts, the king of heaven does. there's a second comfort. This same king has authority over the hearts of your enemies. Grab a hold of that truth. Why did Joseph find peace in Potiphar's house for a season and in the prison? Because God exercises his authority over Potiphar's heart and the prison keeper's heart. Genesis 39, 4 and 21. At the Babylonian captivity, why was Jeremiah the prophet rescued while King Zedekiah had his eyes gouged out and his sons killed before him? Because God spoke a word to Nebuchadnezzar's heart regarding Jeremiah. Jeremiah 39, 11. Don't you see? The same king who has authority over Pharaoh has authority over the hearts of your enemies, which means that they can't do anything to you. They can't speak anything against you. They can't fake anything about you without the king's approval. And if you say right here at this point, yes, but Pastor Josh, my enemies are attacking me. They're harming me. How can God be in control of their hearts if all this pain has come upon me? Wait upon the Lord, loved ones. Wait to see the end of the matter. Trust Him. He will turn the heart in whatever direction that will work for His highest glory and your highest eternal good. It was the end of the matter. It was at the end of the matter when Esther could see that Haman's plans to destroy the Jews was his own undoing. God put it into the heart of Ahasuerus to hang him by his own gallows. The end of the matter will be the same for you. All things will work out for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the third point, that the king of heaven has authority over every human heart. Let's look finally at king over all restitution. And let's consider the end of the matter here. Please look with me at verses 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor... And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. So let's note two things here. Why is it only women? Each woman shall ask of her neighbor. The women who receive the goods here. In the end, Egypt is going to be in such fear of Israel that the weakest sex in Israel, the women, would be able to plunder this mighty nation. Second, this plunder is exceedingly Great. God had promised in Genesis 15, 14 that when Israel would leave Egypt, they would leave with, quote, great possessions. And that's what verse 22 is alluding to. You shall put them, that is these treasures, on your sons and on your daughters. Uh, meaning that there's going to be so much plunder that even the children have to help carry it out of Egypt. Good thing the carpenters have seven children. That worked pretty good for them. This is a reason to be fruitful and multiply, have lots of kids, lots of plundering to take place. So what's going on here? Well, remember that the Israelites were in Egypt for at least two centuries, at least. During that time... Egypt had stole their freedom, they stole generations of labor, and they stole the lives of many of their male children, and God is just, and he required restitution for these actions. Children, restitution means to restore what has been taken, it means to Make up for additional losses that have occurred from theft. So, in Genesis 22, 1, it says that if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Five to one. Thief has to pay back four to five times the amount. Why? Well, because the owner lost additional time and resources in trying to discover what happened to that ox. He has to be compensated for that loss, not only for the ox that was taken, but for the time he lost. That's restitution. And here the king of heaven is making the Egyptians pay restitution for two centuries of stealing, of kidnapping, and of killing the Hebrews. And so we arrive then at our final principle this morning. The king of heaven requires that restitution be made for all wrongs. King of heaven requires that all restitution be made for all wrongs. And we look at this, and this is a great reason to rejoice that God righted this wrong done by Egypt. Egypt. But, dear congregation, the sword cuts both ways. If the king requires the restitution be made for all wrongs, then you and I have an absolutely dreadful problem. What about the wrongs that we have committed? Dear congregation, you have stolen from God. Every sin that you have committed against the king is theft. You've stolen obedience every time you've ignored his law. You've stolen love every time your heart treasured something more than him. You've stolen time whenever you, without cause, have laid aside his Sabbath. You've stolen authority whenever you have decided to live life your own way. You've stolen glory whenever you boasted in yourself. You've stolen mercy whenever you have hardened your heart in showing pity to others. Dear friends, if this king requires restitution, then we are undone. This teaches us that no one can... Escape from divine justice, the wages of sin is death, the sin, the soul that sins shall die. How can we possibly make restitution and still live? Don't you see? But that is the good news of Christmas. That this king of heaven, this king of the burning bush came down into a cradle, and he came for one reason to make restitution for the sins of his people. Jesus came to satisfy the law of divine justice for you. Think of that. Egypt was, was forced to pay. Uh, restitution at the highest earthly cost. They they lost their own firstborn sons and the whole land was in ruin. But the house of heaven paid a much dearer cost than that. The father in making restitution for your sins gave up his son. The Christ, the, the prince of heaven, the one that is adored by all the angels both day and night. Egypt was forced to part with all of her earthly treasure when Israel was set free. But God, in giving us his son, has given us the greatest treasure in the universe. Beloved, in Christ, you have plundered the cosmos. Romans 8:32 He who did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things You have so much treasure in Christ that you couldn't carry it out of this world if you had a thousand children You have the forgiveness of sins you have the righteousness of Christ. You have the Holy Spirit, the, tri- the third person of the Trinity dwelling within you. You have peace with God. You have an inheritance in heaven that is waiting for you, that is imperishable, that is undefiled, that is unfading. You have a life that will never come to an end, everlasting life Billions of ages from now, you'll stop and think, I haven't even begun. You have God is your God. God is your God, and you are his son. You are his daughter. You have something waiting for you that eye has not seen, and ear has not heard, and neither has it ever entered into your heart. Dear friends, When the Father gave you King Jesus, you plundered heaven. That's the king that we serve. The king who has shaped all of human history for his redemptive purposes. The king who rules over every earthly rule. The king who is over every resolve, over every human heart, including your own. And this king here who is over restitution. He made sure that our debt was paid in full. It is finished. Let's pray. Our father in heaven. Thank you for sending this king, this king who brought Egypt to her knees in the form of a baby who had lived the life that we needed to live and who died the death that we deserve to die so that we might have our restitution paid in full. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We honor you. We celebrate your name. Help us now to sing from the depth of our being the greatness of your royalty. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.